This is Making Peace Visible, the podcast that explores how the media covers peace and conflict. I'm your host, Jamil Simon. A main premise of our show is that peace efforts are invisible in the mainstream media, or certainly not visible enough. But one place that has grabbed at least some of the world's attention is the peace process in Colombia. In 2016, after repeated failed negotiations, the FARC guerrilla organization finally signed a peace deal with the government. After 50 years of war, militants turned in their weapons and they began a process of reintegration into society. Barrera's documentary, A Call for Peace, tells the story of the peace process in Colombia through interviews with peace builders who played key roles behind the scenes. Skilled negotiators from places like Northern Ireland, Israel, and El Salvador shared their experience in council with President Santos. Our guest, filmmaker Juan Carlos Barrero, was used to running from the guerrillas when filming in the Colombian countryside. Everyone he knew had a family member who had been kidnapped or killed. He never thought he'd see peace between the government and the FARC. The implementation of the agreement has been rocky, with continued violence surrounding the drug trade and victims still waiting for reparations. In August 2022, newly elected President Gustavo Petro announced a campaign called Total Peace. He promised to follow through on the promises of the 2016 agreement and forge peace agreements with other militant groups. Just last week, leaders of the guerrilla group ELN arrived in Bogota amidst negotiations, a historic show of cooperation with the government. But on the same day, President Petro's son confessed to receiving illicit donations to his father's campaign. Despite setbacks, there's no doubt that the 2016 peace agreement was a significant achievement that offers hope and a new way forward for Colombians. And we'll be looking at how it's playing out in upcoming episodes. We first published our interview with Juan Carlos Barrero in May of 2022. I started by asking him what motivated him to make the film. Uh, I did uh, several documentaries. I participated in many documentaries all around Colombia. And some of those documentaries were about some failed peace processes that happened before. And it was hard to see an end to the war. It was very chaotic. It was very difficult to live in Colombia. When you grow up in a country of war, it's hard to see peace. I never thought I would see peace in my lifetime. So when I saw the possibility that this peace process was really happening, I decided to tell the story, basically the behind the scenes of the story that was the most interesting, interesting subject for me. Just briefly, for people who might not be familiar with the conflict, can you give us some background on the war in Colombia? What did the FARC want? What did the paramilitaries want? What were the motivations behind the violence? Well, it's a uh, very... In 25 words yeah. or less. <laughs> yeah, it's been like more than 50 years of war, so uh, the yeah, origin comes from the two political parties, the main political parties in the country, the liberal and the conservative. And it was always difficult to have participation in politics for a third party, any third party with different issues. So... These two parties, like, they keep and share the power power forever. And P3 
people who has tried to come to power and with different thoughts, different um, vision, have been shot down. So that's one of the main reasons. And then also, there's a lot of social issues in the country, like the distribution of land. So I think that was uh, one of the main issues that made the FARC go to like uh, make a war against the government. Then in the 80s, the narcos appear into the picture. So they mm, saw right. the guerrilla start to get uh, money and get yeah, they got their income from export of coca of cocaine. So that gives another level to the war. As a Colombian citizen, you observe the conflict. And the, and the peace process from the outside, but when you got inside the process by making the film, what did you learn that was new, that, that surprised you? One of the main things that you learn is like the lessons learned from former peace process around the world are key elements to face any peace process. So I was so surprised to see that I was like actually experts on peace, people who has been dealing with peace processes around the world for a long time. And they give you like a, a line of knowledge of how to face a peace process and how there's a lot of similarities in the peace process and how like you can lay out a successful peace process or at least something that could lead to a successful talk talks with your adversary. For listeners, before we go too much further, I'd like to play a clip from the film that gives you a sense of the process from the advisor's point of view. This voice that you'll hear is from Bill Yuri, a world-renowned peace builder who was a member of the team. Negotiation is an exercise in influence. You're trying to change someone else's mind. How can you possibly change someone else's mind unless you know where their mind is? So I helped the government encourage them to put themselves in the shoes of the FARC, in the shoes of their negotiating opponent, to try and understand what it was like to be in their shoes. What was animating them? What were their core interests? And one of the things they realized was that the FARC was not going to surrender. The FARC had not been defeated militarily. They had been hurt militarily, but they hadn't been defeated and they weren't going to surrender. And they weren't going to just give up their weapons and say, uh, Timoshenko wasn't going to say, guys, it was all a mistake, sorry. You know, we, we fought for nothing. When some of these advisors talked about the challenges that they faced on trying to come to other peace agreements, like in Israel and Ireland. And in a sense, it was a, a lesson in how peace gets made listening to both, uh, you know, to a variety of countries. Um, and that's how I, it, I get the feeling that's how that's you set true, the yeah. whole thing up. It's also, all of, these, all of these experts somehow were affected by different wars, like uh, Jonathan Powell. His father was shot by the IRA, uh, his brother was in the shooting list of the IRA. He was uh, an actual victim of the war, but he was also willing to talk to the IRA. It was very difficult to him at the beginning, but then he realized that 
he, the only way to reach peace was to talk to them. So it was his internal process. We tried to like to show his internal process that is at the same time the same internal process that every negotiator had. For example, in Colombia, everybody at that negotiation negotiation table was a victim somehow directly or indirectly. So was was trying to mm. link right. that part of the victim that is like like in Colombia everybody was a victim somehow, direct or indirect. Yeah, that's yeah. That's for sure. I mean, the fact that the war went on for fifty years, that two hundred and fifty thousand people died, um there are a lot of victims in that. Let's listen to a clip from some of the peace builders talking about the role that the victims played in the peace process, which is really a significant role. The first voice you'll hear is from former Israeli diplomat Shlomo Ben-Ami, and then Eamon Gilmore, he was the Irish Minister of Foreign Affairs, and the Norwegian diplomat Aydan Vett. So let's listen to those, and then we'll talk again on the other side. The victims were much more uh, lenient in their attitude to the guerrilla than the politicians and the, and the Bogota bourgeoisie. But the real heroes in this are, are the victims and the, the, the families of the victims, and particularly the families of victims who could come to terms with the loss that they had suffered and who were prepared to, uh, to move forward from that. The victims also showed an enormous courage coming to Havana, meeting with the parties, confronting them with very serious and, and terrible stories uh, and losses. And it, it, was, it was terrible to hear, but it was also very important for the process because after having negotiated very technical issues for a long time, what the victims did is that they really brought the reality, the Colombian reality to Havana and to the parties. From your perspective, covering this peace process, what gave the victims the motivation to continue the process in spite of some major setbacks, such as the killing of government troops and the government's reprisal? And uh, Basically, the victims didn't want their sons, daughters, to have the same life that they had living in the middle of the war, the violence. So the basic fact was no repetition. We don't want this to happen again to nobody, to nobody in this country. So some victims, like mostly the indirect victims, have a hard time forgiving. So as the people in the cities where, this, where the war didn't happen, then you have the victims from the rural areas, from the countryside, and they were like willing to mm -hmm. forgive because they were like the, the direct victims. So you have those three right. wheels spinning in a different directions in a peace process, yeah. Right. Also, uh, from what I understood, the, uh, in a sense, the bourgeoisie in Bogota were against That's the correct. Ukrainians. That's correct. That's the that part right? of the city, of the... Even though they didn't suffer as much as the uh, people yes, in Yes, those are like the indirect victims because somehow some of the people that you know uh, were kidnapped cousins, uh, or they were not able to go back to the farms that they have, 
but they were like not direct victims. So they see the the actually the guerrilla in a different they have a different view of the guerrilla, another view of the conflict. So they have a, a harder time understanding everything. There was more hate in, in in the cities than of course in the countryside when they have like to leave the war every day. And and also, I mean, I must say it boggles the mind to think about a a war that lasted 50 years. I mean, we just finished two wars that lasted about 20 years, and it's amazing when you think about the uh, the damage. But so 50 years is yes, a whole other level. More than 250,000 victims, I mean, of dead people. Yes. Yeah. And when you think, I mean, that's just the dead people, but the people that they that surround them, their families, their brothers, their mothers, their fathers, you know, it it's multiplied by a lot. So it really did have a huge impact. Um, I want to play another clip here, just a short one, about the challenge of striking a balance between justice and peace, which is really fundamental to arriving at a peace process in a situation like Colombia. This is Bernard Aronson. He's Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs. We not only have to look at the human rights and the justice for the victims, but the human rights and justice for the next generation and subjecting them to war and refusing to reach an agreement because of some abstract principle was a very heavy moral and political responsibility. And so there was a balance between justice and peace that had to be struck. What strikes me about that quote is, you know, the the human rights, not only for this generation, but for the next generation. To refuse to negotiate, in a sense, sentences everyone to a continuation of the status quo, a continuation of of the war. Yeah, I think it was a very difficult part to like to strike a balance between justice and peace, right? So the first thing that the government or the advisors told the government was you have to see what they want and you cannot start the process telling them, okay, all of you guys are going to be facing 30 years in prison and then we will have peace. So of course they will run away from the negotiation table. It is like, what are they? What are they looking for? What they really the guerrilla wants? They decided, okay, so they want a political participation. So let's make a deal. They have to give the weapons, and we'll give them political participation. That was like a basic deal. But then comes the mm-hmm. the law, right? So they there was a lot of atrocities coming from the guerrilla from both sides. But then, what do you do in terms of the future of the country? Like you keep fighting, so it's going to be more victims, or you decide to give them some amnesty and go ahead and have no more victims in the country and have no more war in the country. A lot of people looking at the peace process in Colombia felt that this agreement was unusual and it in that it was so comprehensive. It touched so many areas important to the FARC, like land reform and, uh, you know, economic development in the rural areas and, you know, many, many other 
other things. What made the situation in Colombia ripe for a comprehensive peace agreement like that? The main reason given by the president at the time was that the government was in a position of strength. So that's the first step when you have a peace agreement, being the position of strength. Also, the alignment of all Latin American countries and presidents, they were all, all agree that it was time to make a peace process, and they all helped to have this peace process. So it was like regional alignment in politics, and also the position of a strength. Those two like, they were like the, probably the key factors. Yeah, I mean, the international involvement was really strong. That was a major, major factor, the, the involvement of the Norwegians, you know, who played a role in starting the process, I think. I mean, there was really a lot of international involvement, and it no, must have helped. In terms of trust, for example, the Norwegians have kept for too many years a relationship with the different guerrillas in the country, with the FARC, with the ELN. They are in constant dialogue with them. They go to the campaments of the FARC, they go to the campaments of the ELN, and they keep talking to them. And they, those groups really trust the Norwegians. The government also trusts them. So that was a very important ally for the government and for the guerrilla to have the Norwegians participating in the government. And that was how they initiated their first contacts, was through the Norwegians that were able mm. to go to the FARC campaments and be able to talk to them directly and create some trust in the government and be a, a good, like a good partners in the whole peace process. That's a real strong commitment. It makes a big difference. I've heard President Santos talk several times about the peace process. He felt that he didn't quite, especially after the failure of the referendum, he felt like he didn't do a good enough job bringing the press and the media along with him. He sort of felt that peace was obvious. Everybody loves peace. But... <laughs> It turned out not to be so yeah, true. Yeah, he said that was one of the biggest mistakes because he never, he never started a process with the general population of how the peace process was going and how, and how to sell the peace process really to the Colombians. So actually he gave, mm -hmm. he gave that space to the opposition. So the opposition was the one who was talking about the peace process, and they actually, they were misinforming about the peace process, but they were actually in charge of telling the people how the peace process was going, not the actual government. So that was a big mistake in communications. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. So they were only hearing one part of the story. Exactly, and the president, as you said, yeah. he was always trusting of believing in peace, that everybody will be happy with peace. So that was a big lesson that he and his actual group of experts learned in Colombia. You have to keep talking to the population and you have to like keep informing and also teaching them like why why what this process is about basically. 
You, you interviewed these amazing peace builders who were involved in the process from Ireland, Norway, Israel, El Salvador, and other countries. Um, were there any characters who really stood out to you in terms of their ability to influence the process? I think all of them, but you can t- say that probably Shlomo Wedami was the first one to be involved in the process. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to see a former foreign minister of Israel who didn't have any problem talking to Yasser Arafat or to any of the Palestinian parts. He wasn't, he always talked about, he never was in a position of hate. He was always interested, likely in a very personal way to listen and to know what they have to say. He was always willing to see, to hear the other part, which is, you have to say that it's hard when when you have a conflict like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that involves too many issues like religion, culture, land. And this person, Shlomo Enami, was always willing to to address all the issues without hate, without preconditions, always willing to hear. So I was uh, very, he's a very interesting human being. And he was a great advisor to the President mm-hmm. Santos since the very beginning, to be willing to have that mm-hmm. perspective and be willing to share the lessons of the Oslo Agreement and the failures that are also lessons. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the, exactly. You learn from success and from failure. In the scenes, when you see the advisors working together with Colombian president at the time, President Santos, it looks like the chemistry between them was very good. Uh, what do you think made that possible? Uh, he was he met all those advisors before, in many occasions. He was also actually friend with the Shlomo Enami. He was friend with Jonathan Powell, and he interacted with many of them mm-hmm. as a minister and uh, as a diplomat way before the peace process. Probably the last one joining the group that he wasn't really a, a friend of an acquaintance of the President Santos was the ex-commander of the FMNL from El Salvador, Joaquin Villalobos. So it was the latest, but he was a great part of the team He because he was able to give Santos and the team the perspective of the guerrilla because he was a former guerrilla commander. And he was uh, yeah exactly. It's right, unique to give really that perspective. Unique. You don't you don't have it. Yeah. One of the things that as the process unfolded, the public had difficulty accepting that the war continued while the peace process was going on. It was hard for the public to digest. How did the president explain that to the people, or did he? Actually, I'm not sure if he ever explained to the public. I think he, that was never express really in words. He was like only in the initial dialogue with the FARC and the get-go of the negotiation that he he said that until everything was agreed, the combats wouldn't stop. So yeah, that, that's hard to understand. Right. But Well, you know, speaking as a, as a fellow filmmaker, I'm impressed with the access you got to the international peace interviews, peace builders who you interviewed. How did you get this access? It was very difficult. I have to say that it took six months to get the first interview. I believe it was complicated to get 
only to get the emails and to get any number of these persons because they are, have all very low profile. They are very busy and they don't want to spend time with something that probably is not worth their time. So mm. you have to convince each of them. So we con when we convinced the first one after six months of trying, it was easier to start convincing the second one. Once you have the second one, it was the third one. But it was also, at the same time, we were trying to get them, but it was probably the word of mouth that was like one by one talking to another. Yeah, yes. Yeah, well, but it, right. Exactly. That made a big difference. And we had the support at the time of the ambassador of Colombia at the United Nations. So that was a big support in terms of contacts. And also the press office at the United Nations helped us to contact other people. So we had that support and that was very helpful. Is there anything I didn't ask that you would like to say about the process that you think would be interesting for people? Um, there's another part like that Willie, William Uri always talks about is like to be willing to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Mm -hmm. It may sound easy, but it's not that easy, mm -hmm. especially when you're facing an adversary or an enemy. I mean, all these negotiators like to talk about an adversary, but not an enemy. But it's actually an enemy at the beginning, right? Right. So when you are talking to an enemy, it is difficult to put yourself in that people's shoes. So right. I think it was a very interesting and very good concept to start yeah. a peace process or any negotiation. You have to learn more about and the people who is across the table. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's what him, Bill him. says. I mean, he says, how can you even presume to understand the other party who you're negotiating with unless you really find out where they're coming from, what, what, exactly. what their objectives are and um, what their attitudes are? Well, I think that active listening, listening to the other party is a very important part of any negotiations. So, Juan Carla, I really want to thank you for being with us today and sharing your insights about making and telling stories about one of the most important peace processes in the last 50 years. So Thank thanks again, Carlos. We really no. appreciate your participation in this, in the Making Peace Visible podcast. No, thank you for the invitation and thank, thank you for inviting me to talk about my film. You can watch Juan Carlos Barrero's documentary film, A Call for Peace, at the link in the notes to this episode. Or... Go to the Peace Docs page in the War Stories, Peace Stories website for more information. Making Peace Visible is produced by Andrew Moraskin. Peter Agus is the creative director of the War Stories, Peace Stories project. I'm Jamil Simon. In our next episode, we'll continue our series on Colombia with Daniel Salgar, a seasoned journalist who worked as an editor on Colombia's Truth Commission report.